Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I will now take up the book of Jude in this audio. I'm going to do the first eight verses. Jude is a one-chapter book. Unfortunately, it's not the easiest book in the world. It has 24 verses. I'm going to break them down, break the chapter down into three sections of eight verses each. We'll start now in Jude chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called, loved by God the Father, and kept by Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now let's look at some miscellaneous introductory material. The date, first of all, the date seems, most people seem to date it between 65 and 80. I've seen 75 as an estimate also, which is in that range. Both Jude the Apostle and Jude the brother of Jesus, depending on who this Jude is, we'll talk about that in a minute, they would have both lived in that range. So whoever wrote the book of Jude will be living at that time. Now, if Second Peter used Jude, because there's a lot of verses in Second Peter that parallel, a lot of expressions in Second Peter that parallel those in Jude, well, then Jude would be in the early end of the range, 65 to 80, because we know Peter died in approximately 64 A.D., so who were the recipients of the letter? People don't really know. Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, both. The introduction is very general to those who are the called. We don't know whether they're Gentile or Jewish. What's the purpose of Jude's letter? Is to guard against early Gnostic heretics. Just like, of course, John was doing in his letters. Just like Second Peter was doing. These people were everywhere. Now, who is the author of Jude? Now, you can really get into the weeds on this issue. In fact, I finally just completely scratched out all my notes on the subject and redid my notes and put a simplified discussion of who Jude was because there are basically only two options. The first option is Jude is Jude the Apostle. Now, Jude the Apostle, I mean one of the original 12 apostles with Jesus, he's called the son of James. Now, that James is unknown, but... Jude, the son of James, is the title of, is the name of Judas given in the list of the apostles. For example, in Luke 6.16, 6, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Judas, the son of James. Now, this James is unknown. Harper's Bible Dictionary says this James is a fourth James. The other three James are standard and well-known. James, the brother of John, son of Zebedee, he was killed early, executed in Acts chapter 12. Then James, the Lord's brother who was the famous pillar apostle at Jerusalem, leader of the church, who was executed by being thrown off the temple. And then James the last, the son of Alphaeus, who was one of the original disciples. Well, that those three James are not the James that is mentioned in Luke 6.16 in the list of the apostles. Judas, the son of James, is a different James. All right, so this Judas, the original apostle, is called the son of James. He's also called Judas, not Iscariot. John 14, verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it you're going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? Then in Acts 1, 13, where there's another list of the apostles, we have, when they arrived, they went to the room upstairs where they were saying, Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All right, so we know that there was a Judas who was the son of James, and by the way, sometimes he's called Thaddeus, in another list of the apostles. But it's unlikely that's who it is. Why? Because in Jude chapter 1, verse 1, Jude identifies himself as a brother of James, where the disciple Jude is called the son of James, at least in all the modern translations. Now, the King James fudges it by calling 
Jew, the brother of James in that list I just read, Luke 6.16. But I'm going to assume there's a funky translation by the King James because most of the other translations don't have it that way. So, if the apostle is Judas, the son of James, that's not who wrote the book of Jude because Jude identifies himself in verse 1 as a brother of James. Let me read that to you, Jude 1.1. 1, 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called, loved by God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Now, this, of course, assumes that James is the brother of Jesus. Matthew 13.55 says this, Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? So James and Judas were half-brothers of Jesus James wrote the gospel of J- the letter of James, and Jude, the other half-brother, wrote the letter of Jude, and that's just so simple. And that's also the majority view, which makes it even better. So, we're not going to go into a complicated discussion about all the possible Jews in the New Testament and could they have written the Bible. It is, there's no need. We're just going to assume that Jude is the half-brother of Jesus. Now, there's the next question. Another problem is... Why does Jude not claim to be an apostle in his introduction? Paul often does that. Jude even seems to separate himself from the apostles. For example, in verse 17, he says, But you, dear friends, remember what was predicted by the apostles. Not us apostles, but the apostles. Sounds like he's in a different, he's putting himself in a different group of the apostles. He could have said what was predicted by us apostles, but he didn't. So the question is, why? Well, I don't know why, unless it's just modesty. But as a fact, matter of fact, he didn't do it. Now, he could have claimed to be the half-brother of Jesus if he indeed was so. Now, that's easier to say why he didn't do that, because he didn't want to take advantage of his relationship with Jesus and say, ah, he's pulling rank on us because he spent his childhood with Jesus, and he's Jesus' blood half-brother, and so he thinks he can just say whatever he wants. He wasn't going to do that. James didn't do that either. James never asked for special privileges because he grew up with Jesus. I'm talking about James, the pillar apostle. All right, so we're going to say that Jude is the Lord's half-brother, and he wrote the book of Jude, and he was not one of the original 12 apostles. Now, another reason why Jude might not have identified himself as the Lord's brother, in addition to modesty, and instead chose to identify himself as James's brother, is because James, he could have said, I'm Joseph's son. The reason he didn't do that, probably, as Unger's Bible Dictionary says, is that James was much more well-known to Jude's readers than was Joseph, and so he said, I'm the brother of James. All right, in the last half of verse 1, Jude says this, To those who are the called, that's us, Christians, loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be kept? Kept by Jesus Christ. Well, the King James translates that as preserved, and that's exactly what it means. I'm going to give you some scriptures here that will show you that Christians will indeed be preserved until the time that they receive their internal inheritance. For example, in John 6, verses 37 through 40, Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me but you raise them up on the last day. So you see, we're going to be kept until the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You're going to be kept until the time that you're raised up, no matter how bad things get down here on the earth. John 17, 11 through 12, high priestly prayer. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them 
keep them, in other words, protect them by your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them is lost, except the son of destruction, that's Judas Iscariot. So he, Jesus very clearly says over and over again, he protects his sheep. First Peter 1, 3-5. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted, and unfaded, unfading, kept in heaven for you. So your reward is kept. You're kept, and your reward is kept. And, you, and the two shall meet, you and your reward. You are being protected, in First Peter 1, 5, you are being protected by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time, kept and protected of the same meaning, have the same meaning. So we see, there's assurance for you, folks. There's the perseverance of the saints. That nice little phrase that Armenians seem to never mention, at least not in my experience. We now go to Jude chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Dear friends, although I was eager to write you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write and exhort you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. For some men who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into promiscuity and denying Jesus Christ our only Master and Lord. Now Peter says, although I was eager to write you about the salvation we share, it seems like he had the idea he was just going to write generally about the gospel, the good news. But instead he's got to take some time out to deal with the heretics, the flies in the ointment. And unfortunately that's the way it is. Sometimes you've got to get rid of the bad so you can enjoy the good. This salvation we share, King James says, our common salvation, Jude was saved, they were saved, Jews and Gentiles both were saved, everybody saved. Well, not everybody saved, everybody who names the name of Jesus is saved. I found it necessary to write and exhort, and exhort you to contend for the faith. That means fight for. Contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. Now, if Christians, if any Christian gets the idea that he's just going to believe and that's just the way it's going to be, and we're just going to float along until we get to our heavenly reward, it doesn't work that way. We've got to fight for the gospel from the time that we're born to the time that we, they lay us in our grave. Here's what Paul said to the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your conversation be, this is King James, your life, be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Striving together, that means you're working for it. You're fighting for it. We Christians are always going to have to fight for our faith. Fight for what faith? The faith that was delivered once for all. Delivered to the saints once for all. What that means is there is to be no other authoritative revelation after the, after the apostles. Once the faith was delivered to the apostles, that was it. We don't have any more revealed doctrine. It's all inscripturated, and that's it. Verse 4, For some men who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They were designated, that means ordained, as the King James actually has it. The NIV has written about, but then they have in their marginal note, men who were marked out for condemnation. Well, that's interesting because both of those textual variants stake out positions held by Arminians and Calvinists. If you take it to be written about long ago, then you're the, you will take the Arminian position, as Adam Clark does, and say the a long time ago, 
it was written that people would be heretics and they would be destroyed. But if you're a Calvinist, you will say that they that these heretics were marked out for destruction from the beginning of the world. At the same time, the saints were marked for election. So let me give you a feel for that little controversy. Here's what Adam Clark says. It is most obvious the obvious meaning that the judgment that Jude wrote about is related in the next verses, which had been written about in the past, He uh, Clark claims. And he says... This is most obviously the apostles' meaning. Well, it's not obvious because John Gill doesn't believe it, for example. And it is as ridiculous as it is absurd to look into such words for a decree of eternal reprobation, etc. Such a doctrine being as far from the apostles' mind as from that of him whose name he wrote. This is what Clark always says about Calvinists. He gets really in a high dudgeon about it. Here's what Gill says about it, though. Designated for destruction... Quote, reprobation is of the same date with election. If the one is from eternity, the other must be so too, since there cannot be one without the other. If some were chosen before the foundation of the world, others must be left or passed by as early. And if some were appointed unto salvation from the beginning, others must be foreordained to condemnation from the beginning also. There's a little bit of logic there, double predestination. And, of course, Adam Clark opposes that. He says, no, it wasn't from the foundation of the world. It was in history, not before the world was created. For example, there was disobedient Israelites, unfaithful angels, men of Sodom and Gomorrah, and so forth, who were written about. And these were the people that Jude was referring to. They were written about as being headed for judgment. Well, I don't think you're going to solve the Calvinist, Arminian heresy by arguing over those two words there. For one thing, you got textual variance. So I'm not going to try to argue argue it one way or the other. I, I'm a Calvinist. I believe that these men were designated from the eternity for reprobation. That doesn't bother me in the least, but we don't have to get into that right now. Now, notice this idea of being designated for destruction or designated for judgment long ago. That is also echoed in Second Peter 2.3. Remember, Second Peter closely parallels Jude. Second Peter 2.3 says this, They will exploit you in their greed with deceptive words. Their condemnation pronounced long ago. There's pronounced long ago is how Holman Christian Study Bible handles this verse here. Second Peter 2.3, pronounced long ago. That's like designated long ago. That condemnation is not idle and their destruction does not sleep. So, judgment is about to fall on the heretics because of their sin. Whether it was designated from the foundation of the world or whether it was predicted in history, as far as I'm concerned, doesn't matter right now. All we know is the heretics are headed for trouble. Now, there's a little confusion about the word this. For some men who were designated for this judgment, what judgment? Well, if it's marked out for judgment, they were designated for this judgment long ago. If the NIV margin is right, or men who were marked out for condemnation for this judgment long ago, then it would just be referring to the previous couple of words, the judgment that is designated from before the foundation of the world. Or it could refer to the judgment that's coming afterwards. And, of course, that judgment is going to be mentioned in all the examples that are given later on in Jude, which we haven't gotten to yet. James Fawcett Brown mentions some examples. For example, Balaam, Korah's rebellion, Balaam and his ass, Balaam and and Balak. You remember that story in Numbers? The disobedient Israelites, full of rebellion there, Sodom and Gomorrah. They're all marked out for judgments, written in the past. as forewritten, as James Fawcett Brown say. All right, so if that's what this judgment refers to, that would be tend to favor the Armenian position. 
Let me give you another quote from John Gill. It says, no, that's not so. He says, these words designated for this judgment, these words cannot be understand of any prophecy of old in which it was forewritten or prophesied of these men that they should be condemned for their ungodliness. Now, this is an interesting point because it says, of old, of old, these men were designated or written about, depending on how you want to translate it. For some men who were designated for this judgment or who were written about for this judgment long ago or of old. Well, Gill is going to make the point that there was no prophecy made long ago in the scriptures about these men, these these heretics headed for judgment. It just doesn't exist. So therefore, it must be mean God's eternal designation of for judgment for these heretics at the beginning of the world, before the beginning of the world. Now, Gill goes on with this quote to show that there were there, there were no such historical predictions of judgment for the heretics. He says there's not such in Matthew 24. No such person is described as there. That was the Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, the destruction of the temple. That was not talking about these heretics being killed or judged. No, there's no mention of their punishment or condemnation there in Matthew 24.1, nor in 2 Peter 2.1, which says this, but there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. They will secretly bring in destructive heresies and the Armenians, like Clark, and say, see there, it was written about. But was it written about of old? No, because Second Peter was written at the same time as Jude was. So how do you handle that, Mr. Clark, Dr. Clark, Mr. Armenian? How do you handle that? These prophecies were supposed to be of old a long time ago. The apostle never would have said they were of old a long while ago, Gil writes, before written or prophesied of, since according to the common calculation, that epistle of Peter's and this of Jude's were written in the same year, nor in the prophecy of Enoch, which is in Jude 1.14, which we'll get to next week. For Enoch's prophecy was not written, as we know of, and therefore these men could not be said to have been written before written in it. So how can you say that it was forewritten? No, it was foreordained at the foundation of the world, Gil is saying. It was not written earlier in the scriptures that these men were designated for judgment. Besides, that prophecy is spoken of, the one in Enoch, is spoken of as something distinct from these persons being before written to condemnation. And after all, was a prophecy referred to. The sense would be the same, since such a prophecy concerning them must be founded upon an antecedent ordination and appointment of God. Well, that's very complicated, but what he's saying is there's got to be a prediction of judgment for somebody, and it's not there. The word here used, forewritten or designated, the word here used does not intend there being forewritten in any book of the Scriptures, but in the book of God's eternal purposes and decrees. Well, we went into a lot of controversy with that little word designated for judgment. So these people that were designated for judge, for judgment long ago have come in by stealth, Jude says. Now, stealth is the modus operandi of heretics. I know it's a personal example. I know of a friend of mine had a church, and for 10 years, heretics were in his church, one or two or three of them. And I know these people, these heretics. They denied that Jesus... They denied that Christians would have a resurrection at the end of time, a physical resurrection. They denied the physical resurrection of the body, which is obviously heretical. It contradicts all the, the three major orthodox creed, uh, creeds, Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, the Athanasian Creed, and, it's, and it contradicts the Scripture, of course. And so they kept quiet about it for 10 years. In fact, one of them became an elder in the church, and then all of a sudden they started having secret Bible studies to talk about how the resurrection of the dead has not occurred and will not occur. 
and it caused a big stink. The church blew up. They almost destroyed themselves. And finally, the heretics were booted out. But with the damage they did. And so my point is, is they operated in stealth until all of a sudden they reveal themselves. That's the way heretics do. And so what Jude is talking about here is not surprising. They came in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into promiscuity. Now, that's a strange phrase. What does that mean? It means that when Christians talk about Jesus has forgiven you for your sins, then the heretics say, oh, so you're saying we can go out and sin all we want. And then Jesus just just keep forgiving us. And so we can go out and sin some more, which, of course, is not what the apostles were saying, but that's what their words were twisted into. That would be promiscuity to go out and say, hey, you can sin all you want. You can shack up with all the women you want because Jesus will forgive you for it. Well, that's not what they were being taught. That was libelous, slanderous for people to say that. So they were turning the gospel, they were twisting it and turning the grace of our God into promiscuity, making the words of the apostles, which were grace, sound like it was promiscuity. Now that's a logical charge on the surface, even though it's a cheap shot, because if you do, you preach grace and pretty soon people are going to tend to go that way and say, oh goody, I can do whatever I want to and be forgiven for it. Paul the apostle was accused of the same thing. Romans 5.20, Paul said this, the law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. And you say, oh, grace is multiplied, more grace, more sin we can do and get it covered. Romans 6.1, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Paul anticipates the logical perversion of his teaching and say may it never be he says in verse 2 chapter 6 and then in Romans 6 15 he says what then should we sin because we're not under the law but under grace we've been forgiven so we should go out and sin some more absolutely not he says so these false heretics are not only turning the grace of God into promiscuity and denying Jesus Christ denying that he came in the flesh that he's the son of God I'm sure they were doing that too Jesus Christ our only master and lord that phrase master and lord is not prominent in the new testament it's in second peter 2 1 but there were also false prophets among the people just as there will be false teachers among you they will secretly bring in destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them this is very much parallel to what jude says and will bring swift destruction on themselves all right so these false teachers are going they they have a penalty built in for what they're doing swift destruction the way jude puts it is they're designated for judgment we go now to verse 5 Jude chapter 1. Now I want to remind you, though you know all these things, the Lord first saved a people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who do not believe. There's the destruction, the hint of judgment coming to these people who deny Jesus. Jude is getting to remind his re- he's getting ready to remind his readers that he is going to talk about how disobedience to God is punished severely. It is, think about why is the world so screwed up today? Because it's a serious thing to, to for, for mankind to sin against a gracious, loving God the way we did. It is a terrible thing, and that's why things are so terrible down here. Disobedience to God is punished severely. That's why we need Jesus to reverse the curse that's been put on us because of our sins. Now, whenever you see remind, that means Jude's readers always, knew, uh, the, the people who are being reminded, obviously already, already know the doctrine that's being taught, but I don't have the other scriptures in front of me, but I know Paul or Peter, I forgot who it was, have said, I want to remind you, it might, it might have been John, actually, I want to remind you, I want to remind you of what I've taught you before. Nothing wrong with that, as long as you don't keep reminding people till it drives them crazy through boring repetition. Now, the first historical example that Jude is giving here of disobedient people being destroyed is the people who came out of Egypt, or the Exodus. 
Their carcasses fell in the wilderness by one judgment or another until every last one of them was dead, except for those who were under 20 years old in Caleb and Joshua. They were destroyed. Perfect role model there. Perfect object lesson. Look at the Israelites. They were destroyed. So you better not listen to these heretics who are going to destroy you. Jude chapter 1 verse 6. And he, God, has kept with eternal chains and darkness for the judgment of the great day, the angels who did not keep their own position but deserted their proper dwelling. Now, that word kept has always caused me a good deal of trouble because it says he has kept these demons in darkness with eternal change. Chains. But I know that demons have been all over the place on the earth. If Jesus cast out a ton of them, so did his apostles. And all throughout it. Well, heck, I've seen demons myself. I've seen them. I've seen them cast out. I've talked to them. So I know they're out. I know they're not hiding. I know they're not in a shaft somewhere. I think Second Peter says Tartarus. So how do you explain that? If they're kept in, kept in chains and darkness, how, how do they come out and roam around on the earth? Well, that's a serious problem, and it's bothered me for a long time. But let's see if we can solve it. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says that. The demons were kept in God's purpose, not in an actual location, not in some dark place where they couldn't harm humans or bother humans. They were kept in God's purpose. You'll notice that Jude 1, 6 never says where they're kept. Now, I know Second Peter says that they were put in Tartarus, and that's a different problem. But here, Jude does not say that they were kept in a particular place. They're just kept. And James and Fawcett Brown says they're kept in God's purpose, which is their eternal destruction. They're kept in for the purpose of destruction, even though they roam the earth now. Now, here's his quote backing up that idea. He says, quote, Probably what is meant is this. This is Jameson Fawcett and Brown. Probably what is meant is, He hath kept them in his purpose that is their sure doom. Moreover, as yet, Satan and his demons roam at large on the earth. And earnest of their doom is their having been cast out of heaven, having already restricted to the darkness of the present, this present world the air that surrounds the earth, their peculiar element now. In other words, they got cast out of heaven, so that's the beginning of their judgment. And now they can harass humans, but they're, but they're chained up to God's purpose. They're eventually going to be destroyed. Continuing with Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown's quote, They lurk in places of gloom and death, looking forward with agonizing fear to their final torment in the bottomless pit. He means not literal chains and darkness. Of course, you don't put a literal chain on a spirit, on a demon. A chain is physical, the demon is a spirit. He's not going to be affected by a chain. So he means not literal chains and darkness, but figurative in this present world, where, with restricted powers and liberties shut out from heaven, they, like condemned prisoners, await their doom. I think that solves the problem nicely. Now, there's another way you can solve that problem, and just say, well, some of the demons are chained up down there, and then some are not chained up, and they're left free to harass human beings on the earth. That's not what it says. I used to, that's how I used to tentatively try to solve that problem. I never was satisfied with it. And I'm still not. It doesn't sound like it's some chains were kept down there. But some demons were kept in eternal chains. It doesn't say some. It says the angels were kept in eternal chains. So it sounds like all of them to me. All right. So that's one more example of how demons are bound. They don't have to worry about them. They're going to be destroyed. We don't let... What does that verse in First John say? The whole world's in sway of the evil one, but the the demons will not touch you, not touch you. Now their doom, their bondage is eternal because of what Jesus did. That means there's no chance for a demon to be saved. Every now and then you hear something nonsensical like that. Eternal means forever, folks. 
That's it. Now let me go back to this problem. I got a little bit, a little bit more notes on this thing about demons. How if they're chained, how can they be out roaming around bothering people? Wayne Grudem in his widely published Systematic Theology says this: chains doesn't mean demons aren't free to roam earth. It just means that demons are under God's punishment. They're God's slaves. Now this is me, not Grudem. This is a verse I like to use here to sh- to back Grudem up. And Jameson Fawcett and Brown up, Second Peter 2, 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Keep the unrighteous under punishment. Well, the unrighteous are free to roam about the earth, but hey, they're not going to escape the punishment of God until the day of judgment. But they're still free to roam the earth. And likewise, if demons are kept for the day of judgment, they're also free to roam around the earth. Now, that's wonderful. Well, let me go on. Let me let me say some more about this. There is another way. As I mentioned, there's an alternate way to solve this problem of how can bound up demons roam around on the earth. Well, there's two alternate ways to solve it. The first I've already given you is that some of the demons stay chained and some stay loose. But here's another possible solution that's mentioned by Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. The demons are chained up, but then they're unchained temporarily to let them out on a pass. They go out. Sort of like a get-out-of-jail pass. And then they come back into the darkness. I think that's nonsense in my humble opinion. For one thing, all throughout history, every you could find demonic activity, witchcraft, occult, and all that kind of stuff going on. Doesn't sound like the demons ever went back into the darkness, into abyss to leave human beings alone temporarily until they're let out again. No, that's not what it means. It means they're kept for judgment. It doesn't mean they're locked away. Now... I will, I will say this, this is not 100% believed by everybody because, for example, John Gill says that the demons are kept with eternal chains in darkness. He says darkness is hell. Well, as soon as you say that, of course, then you got the problem. Well, then how are they free to roam? Now, let me see if I can deal with the passage, the parallel passage in Second Peter 2, 4. For if God didn't spare the angels who sinned, but threw them down into Tartarus and delivered them to be kept in chains of darkness until judgment. Now, there... The problem I have is that the demons were actually thrown into Tartarus, which, of course, is just no way of saying hell. Of course, that in itself is controversial, but I'm going to assume that's hell, the Greek way of saying hell. So <clears throat> the angels were sent to hell. Well, then how can they be free to roam around? Well, if you say they're kept in chains, it doesn't say they're kept in chains in Tartarus. It doesn't. Peter doesn't say they're kept in chains in hell. It just means they're kept in chains. They can't be free. They are bound for judgment. They're going to be judged, but not necessarily locked up in Tartarus because they're free to go around and be deviling the hell out of people here on this earth, at least those of us who don't believe in Jesus. All right, enough of that little problem. Notice, by the way, that this chained in darkness here in Jude and Second Peter also, eternal chains in darkness, if that's hell, that contradicts hell is the place of fire because fire ain't dark. Well, that just shows that you got different metaphors for hell. Doesn't mean they have to be. I'm sure there's symbolic of. So I don't. I don't. You know. I don't know whether it's physical fire that eats people up or physical darkness. I'm sure it's a most unpleasant place. The darkness, Adam Clark says, is alluding probably to those dungeons or dark cells and prisons where the most flagitious culprits were confined. The fire. Some people say it refers to the fires of. The burning asphalt on the Dead Sea that happened after Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed and that those fires were still around when Jude was writing. 
Well, I don't know about that, but the two metaphors are contradictions. So we have, we've got to take that into account in our doctrine of hell. We have to say, well, it might not be literally darkness or literally fire. It's just awful, awfully, awfully unpleasant in a horrendous place. Because after what Jesus said, your worm never starts turning. When you're in there, you're getting eaten up, destroyed. All right, so these demons are chained. They're in darkness, spiritual darkness of not literal hell. But the judgment of the great day, they're, they're chained up until when they will be finally cast into the lake of fire before the great white throne judgment, and that'll be the end of them. Never to bother human beings anymore, and humans will be in the final state, in the eternal state, with God and with Christ, and that'll be the end of it for Christians. Now, these demons are called angels in, in, chapters, in verse 6 of chapter 1. They're angels who did not keep their own position. What does that mean, they didn't keep their own position? Well, there's two options for that. The NIV study Bible, option one says, well, they used to be in heaven, heaven, then they fell. Okay, they wouldn't keep their position then. Second option is this. They abandoned the territory to which they had been assigned. Now, that seems sort of funky and off the wall to me, but the NIV study Bible quotes Daniel 10, verses 20 and 21. He said, do you know why I've come to you? I must return at once to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I leave, the prince of Greece will come. No one has the courage to support me against them except Michael, your prince. However, I will tell you what is recorded in the book of truth. Well, there in that passage, the prince of Persia is mentioned, assuming that's a demon, and the prince of Greece is a demon there. And so the idea is the demon left their assigned place by God. I don't believe that. I just don't believe that. I believe they used to be in heaven and they, they lost their position. Now, these angels who fell, who lost their position, they were the ones who sinned before the fall of Adam and Eve. And they became the devil and his demons. And of course we hear that all the time. What verse is used to back that up? Second Peter 2, 4. For if God didn't spare the angels who sinned, but threw them down into Tartarus and delivered them to be kept in chains of darkness until judgment. It doesn't say when that happened, but we assume it happened before man was created because the devil showed up in the Garden of Eden. If he hadn't fallen, how could he have been there? So I think that traditional view is quite logical. Here's what Adam Clark says about the fall of demons, or the fall of angels, becoming demons. The tradition of their fall is in all countries and in all religions, but the accounts given are various and contradictory, and no wonder, for we have no direct revelation on the subject. That's kind of interesting, though, really. Just like there's a flood stories in cultures all over the world, universal floods, not local floods, but floods that engulf the whole earth. That's kind of interesting, is it not? Because it makes you think it really happened, and somebody wrote it down. Likewise, the fall of angels, somehow that got imparted into the subliminal consciousness of mankind. We go down to verse 7, Jude chapter 1. In the same way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them committed sexual immorality and practiced perversions, just as angels did, and served as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. In the same way, Sodom and Gomorrah, in the same way, that angels committed sexual immorality and perversion, so did Sodom and Gomorrah. The angels, of course, were those angels who came and said, we want to have sex. Excuse me, not. The angels were the good angels, and they were with Sodom in his house, and then the homosexuals in Sodom says, hey, we want those beautiful men that you got in there. We want them so that we can sexually abuse them. And so Sodom and Mar, those homosexuals committed sexual immorality just like and practice perversions just as angels did. Now, this is not meant to say that angels committed homosexuality. It just means these demons, the perversions the demons did was rebelling against God. And so they were perverts. They were perverted angels. 
Now, the sexual immorality that those in Sodom and Gomorrah committed, and also the cities around Sodom and Gomorrah, they were Zoar, Abdama, I think. Is that how you say that city? I can't remember right off the top of my head. But these other cities committed sexual immorality. That was probably homosexuality. That's what they were famous for. That's where we get the, ta- the, the name sodomy, which used to be illegal before our enlightened progressive secular government decides that sexual perversion should be called marriage. And the reason I say it's probably homosexuality is because you re- go back in Genesis and you read the story about the homosexuals trying to get the angels out of Lot's house. That's probably why it's homosexuality. Now, of course, homosexual Christians, I've used that word, that oxymoronic word in an ironic sense, they say that, oh, no, it's the gays, the, 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 the sin that these gays did is they wanted to have sex with Lot's angel guest and thus were violating hospitality, Eastern versions of hospitality. Oh, so that's why God destroyed Sodom and they violated hospitality and God made the place a smoking ruin. Nonsense. And of course, if those if those Sodomites who were trying, those people from Sodom who were trying to have sex with Lot's angel guest, they were just violating this the norms of hospitality in Jude chapter 1 verse 7 it says Sodom and Gomorrah committed sexual immorality it didn't say hospitality was violated it says sexual immorality now of course you could say well those were different people in Sodom and Gomorrah who were committing sexual immorality and it wasn't homosexuality it was just plain old heterosexual fornication well, you can twist words all you want, but that's absurd. If there's any doctrine that is absurd and more dangerous, is this homosexuals twisting the scripture to satisfy their own lust. So they can practice their lust, their illicit lust, and think that they are doing God's will. No, they're not doing God's will. They're storing up for themselves wrath and judgment, and it's sad. It's really sad to see. At any rate, these people in Sodom and Gomorrah underwent the punishment of eternal fire. That's what homosexuality will get you. Gay? A gay lifestyle? Gay? Right. No. Eternal fire. That's that's what's going to happen. You know, it says that these people who committed sexual immorality, they were also practicing perversions. Today's homosexuals, to a great degree, I I was reading some homosexual literature, doing a, a talk one time, a presentation on this, and I was shocked to find out there was a high number of homosexuals who practiced the the perversions of fisting and rimming. Now, rimming is when one homosexual takes his tongue and licks the fecal matter off the anus of the other homosexual. And fisting is when one homosexual puts his fist in the anus of the other homosexual and rams his fist all the way up to the pubic bone. This is the most disgusting stuff you've ever seen in your life. And you say, well, that's just an aberration. Well, first of all, if there's no if there are no standards as to what's right and what's wrong, why can't you do fisting and rimming? And besides, so many homosexuals do do fisting and rimming that um, I want to say, you know, we can get great philosophical arguments or theological arguments about homosexuality, but I just say, well, hey, if you don't think that's a perversion, what's wrong with you? If you think that's the way that God meant human beings is to do that, look at the pictures on the Internet of fisting and rimming and tell me that's normal, that's godly. Please. Now, notice it was not Sodom and Gomorrah as a nation or as a city, cities that were punished. It was individual Sodomites and Gomorrahites. We know that because we read in Ezekiel 16:53 through 55, 
I will restore their fortunes, the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters and those of Samaria and her daughters, daughters of his population. I will also restore your fortunes among them, da 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 As for your sisters, Sodom and her daughters will return to their former state. When did that happen? Well, I don't, I'm not an Old Testament theologian. I'm assuming that that happens, that Sodom and Gomorrah were just symbols of the unbelief that was all around. And the point is, is that God was going to convert the unbelieving Gentiles and so that people are going to come back. Now, I know that a lot of literalist dispensationalists are going to say there's going to be a godly city of Sodom in there somewhere someday. I don't know about that. But the point is that Sodom and Gomorrah, despite the horrible judgment that came on, they're going to, on them, their fortunes are going to be restored because God is a God of grace. Jude chapter 1 verse 8, Nevertheless, these dreamers likewise defile their flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme glorious ones. Now again, he's going back to the false heretics who are bedeviling the churches that Jude is writing about. Now it's interesting, dreamers, I've got five options as to how these people dream or who they were. Option number one, Jewish doctors who pretended to be interpreters of dreams. Most of these, let's see, the first four from John Gill. The fifth one, I think, is from me. But anyway, we'll, we'll look at these options one by one. Jewish doctors who pretended to be interpreters of dreams. Those are dreamers, option number one. Option number two, false teachers who have filthy dreams when they sleep. I, I don't think so. Option number three, false prophets who pretend to have divine assistance and intelligence by dreams. Now, that makes sense. Jeremiah 23, 25. I have heard what the prophets who prophesy a lie in my name have said. I had a dream. I had a dream. That sounds like Martin Luther King doesn't, except he wasn't a false prophet. But these false prophets in Jeremiah's times were saying, I had a dream, meaning I have a dream from God and I want to tell you what it is. But, of course, it's a lie. They're false prophets. Option number four, people who dream up false doctrines in their own mind. Here's a quote from John Gill. These arise from the darkness of the understanding and a spirit of slumber upon them, or the fictions of their own brain and of their roving imagination are illusory and deceitful and are in themselves vanities and like dreams pass away. Fifth option, the dreamers are people who when awake entertain filthy thoughts. Well, of all those options, in my opinion, it's people who have false doctrines and they've dreamed them up in their own mind. The NIV Study Bible agrees with me on that. It says these false dreamers claim to receive revelations. In their passion, they were out of touch with truth and reality because they have revelation, but then what happens with the false revelation? What follows right on? They defile their flesh, which shows that so often sexual immorality and immorality in general follows right on with false doctrine, false belief, false practice. Not always, but it's just a matter of time. You'll see it. They defile their flesh. Then IV says they pollute their own bodies. Then IV study Bible says that's probably a reference to homosexuality in Sodom and Gomorrah. In other words, the homosexuals in Sodom and Gomorrah defile their flesh. And these false teachers who are stealthily coming into your churches, my readers, they are defiling their flesh too. They reject authority. That's either God's authority, civil authority, or it's civil authorities. I think it's God's authority. People who are false teachers like this prefer anarchy and confusion. If you don't believe me, look at all the people who are starting these riots every day in American cities right now. This is this is August something, 20-something, 2020. Every day for the last three months, riot, riot, riot. One time they burnt Bibles. One time they burnt an American flag. They burnt police stations. Anarchy, confusion, yelling vile obscenities at the police and at 
anybody who gets in their way and, and opposes what they do. Well, that's what happens when people reject God's authority. And that's what and that's what these false prophets were doing to these to the churches, these heretics that the church had to watch out for. These heretics blaspheme glorious ones at the end of verse eight. Now John gives us three options as to who the glorious ones are. He says the church leaders. I calling church leaders glorious ones, I don't think so. Civil magistrates? I mean, you know, whatever you think about President Trump, I don't think you would call him a glorious one, would you? Or Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping, a glorious one? I know, I don't think so. He's talking about angels, most probably. Gil says, that makes sense to me, because the fallen angels used to be unfallen angels. The angels that, they were, that the demons are reviling now used to be their brother angels. So demons are likely to be especially ticked off at those angels who didn't fall. How come you didn't come join with us in the rebellion against God? You morons. And of course, the angels are going to look down there and say, you're a bunch of fools, demons. You're headed for hell. We're going to remain here with God in eternal bliss forever. On that happy note, we have finished Jude chapter 1. There's only one chapter, verses 1 through 8. In our next audio, we will continue with this idea of false teachers and how they're going to be judged and how historical examples point to their destruction in verses 9 through 16. I hope you stay tuned for that audio and I hope you enjoyed this one.